The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering and Events, who have now moved into home meals. So COVID-19 has descended on the entire world, increasingly isolated. A lot of companies are doing it really tough. I want to shout out Bella Catering um, as basically one of the best catering companies in Sydney, and that means in Australia. Uh, Glenn and Maria, I know, are dear friends, and they are pivoting into home-delivered meals. So the best place you can find them is bellacatering.foodstorm.com. If you are in the Sydney area, you can order a stack of food, very reasonable prices, beautiful homemade stuff, and then they can ship it straight to your house. Um, They're they're currently operating on about a 26-kilometer radius around Sydney, so that pretty much covers the whole city and wider CBD and the other parts of Sydney. So reach out to them if you guys don't feel like cooking and you want some delivered home-cooked goodness in this really tough time. All right, now let's get on to the show. A reading from All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Chapter 2. A man knew the inner workings of the White House, of which Bernstein and Woodward were almost totally ignorant, and better still, he maintained extensive records with his former colleagues. Bernstein asked if he thought there was any possibility that the President's campaign committee, or less likely the White House, would sponsor such a stupid mission as the Watergate raid. Bernstein waited to be told no. I know the President well enough to know that if he needed something like this done, It certainly wouldn't be a shoddy job, said the former official. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is an Iranian-American feminist, self-proclaimed, and pop culture writer, and the first film critic who has written for the Washington Post, and really first person who has written for the Washington Post on this podcast. And it's my great pleasure to welcome her on the show. In fact, I was just talking to her before we started recording about how stupid it is that we haven't spoken yet. Please welcome Roxana Haddadi. Roxana, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. That was such a nice intro. I was like, is Blake my hype man? This is really exciting. <laughs> uh, look, my job as a guest, uh, as a corralling guest on the show is to literally be your hype man every show. That's that's what I do. Uh, a friend of the show, Sean Burns, says, can you please come out to restaurants and bars with me and talk and introduce <laughs> me to women? Um, and uh, so I said, look, for a fee, for a fee. I'm not in, oh, Boston, uh, I'm not in Boston enough. But if yeah. I was, I would totally, I could totally do that. I think that's my I destiny. Mean, You've just gotten onto my destiny. I don't know who that little guy that follows the Undertaker in wrestling is, but I think I'm that guy. So first of all, you need that guy. Second of all, <laughs> it's just a small fee. It's just a nominal amount to, you know, keep the gears rolling. I don't see keep, what the problem is. I don't see what Love the pro- it. Look, I don't see what the problem is here, guys. Let's uh, let's get into oh. it. So first and foremost, as someone, I mean, this is a there's been a few people I've spoken to very recently on the podcast that folks are going to listen to in and around talking to you. And in a couple of episodes time, people are going to listen to someone like Nell Minow, who is a, a, a Washington resident, a titan, a titan and a, an yeah. editor at rogerieber.com, who often just by virtue of living in Washington walks around the locations that are set in this movie. And so I wonder for you as someone who has written for the Washington Post and as someone who is a film critic, like what's your relationship with all the president's men? 
Oh, this is such this is such a good question. And I was thinking about it today because I was like, this is actually a really cliched story, but I love it. So I'm going to tell it like I don't care. Like whatever. Be as cliched um, as you like. Uh, I love it already. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Um, so, yeah. So I, I think I, I would have to take you back to when I was a kid. And I would spend summers in my dad's lab. He was a chemistry professor before he retired. He worked at Catholic University in D.C. So we were always really accustomed to going into D.C. um, and spending time with my dad in his lab. And I distinctly remember that every single morning he would stop at the 7-Eleven for a coffee and a Washington Post. So I grew up surrounded by the newspaper, like and my dad being a very voracious reader. We lived so close to D.C. Um, And when I was in high school... I was in like an arts magnet program and you chose whether you wanted to do print journalism or radio journalism. And I chose print and I think it was just because like I liked writing. I I knew I liked that and I didn't really grasp fully what it meant aside from the fact that like I could see my name being published (laughs) in the school paper, which was very exciting. Um, But so we had to take this journalism class and I, I remember our journalism teacher, you know, as a cliche was one of those people who changed my life. His name was John Mathwin. And he had served in the Korean War and he had been teaching journalism to high school students for like 30 years. Oh my goodness. And, Shout yeah, out to he, John Mathwin for being a teacher who's just awesome. John Mathwin was like changing lives, but he changed my life by embarrassing me. <laughs> he, he, he was like, we're going to show this movie, All the President's Men. Like, this is very important. You all need to watch. And my dumb ass fell asleep within like the first five minutes. <laughs> and he came along and he wrapped his fingers on my desk. And I remember he just looked at me and he was like, pay attention to this. And I was like, all right, let's do this. And I watched it and I loved it. And then I borrowed the book from the library. And I remember going to him and being like, I think I actually like want to do this. And he was like, all right, let's get to fucking work. So like, that's one of those cliche, like he changed my life stories, but like that motherfucker did change my life. (laughs) And and it started with dozing in a high school, in in the, which we must say for everyone who can all reminisce. And maybe it's not as prevalent now for younger kids, but like, when your teacher used to grab a VHS and put it on in the front of a class on a TV oh that was God. on like a wheelie stand. It's always on a wheelie cart. It's Wheel- always on a wheelie cart. Yeah. And, and and it has been watched so that almost the entire VHS is worn out because they've shown it in mm-hmm. countless classes. There was something special about that. And if it was a good movie, it did keep people awake. But you are not unusual to be a person who was dozing in a terrible yeah. movie in class in school. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where I was like, all right, like, what is this really, you know, like, I I am a brown woman, and in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, I kick back against this, like, we're going to watch a movie about these old-ass white guys. Like, there's something about you, what, it what of your I frequent One of your frequent catch cries before, yeah. pre- before you're prefacing a, a, a review on Twitter is like, I'm back on my bullshit again, guys. I'm right. back on my bullshit. Right. Back on my bullshit, and these white men are driving me insane. <laughs> but who knew that those white men would like bring down a presidency? Like that movie, yeah. It, so it really holds a special place in my heart. And I, you know, like I grew up on those sort of like seventies, sixties movies because my parents are both really big movie fans. So like Redford was like a known entity in oh, our home. Huge. Like we watched the way we were. Like we watched Bush Cassidy. You know, so like all of that, like that golden like 70s era of cinema is like so important and just something I love so much so I was really pumped to uh to be part of this and you know especially one of the you know I mentioned Washington Post but one of the big big publications that I think you know seems to have some of the that sort of uh, critical DNA in it is Pajiba, who you write for, you know, oh, an, an indie, indie ent- entertainment and political website. So, you know, The Ringer ha- has got m- the monopoly on sports and movies and Pajiba has it on politics and movies, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, we do, we do do like a weird, I, I mean, I'll be honest, like I am interested in like labor issues and talking about politics and capitalism and socialism and labor and so i love that pajiba like gives you an opportunity to do that yes but yeah like absolutely and i think it's one of those things you know where people say like keep politics out of movies it's like i don't think you understand that politics is like everything movies are politics movies are movies are either radic are kind of like radically uh propagandistic things that are reinforcing the values of the day 
or they're Absolutely. railing against them, or in some ways they're kind of doing that. They're, they're trying, they're they're doing time efforts to be timeless. And there's always a dialogue. It's a, it's having a dialogue with what's being produced, or it's having yeah. a dialogue with the political influences of that filmmaker or the, something like that. It's perspective. Like yes. it's your perspective. It's what you want to communicate, or it's what you want to interrogate. I mean, I think we saw this like super recently with Bong Joon Ho talking about the influence of Marty Scorsese at the Oscars. It's, it's like. Marty and his point of view for decades has been like you look inside yourself and you find what's personal and why that matters and then you make a movie about it and so that can be something super intimate it can be about gangsters it can be about the beginning of the movie making industry it can be Goodfellas or it can be Hugo like there's so many ways for that to go yes and so I feel like we're living right now in this time where you're getting so many different perspectives and that's very exciting but I also think it's so important to know like where we came from and the movies that came before us and helped pave the way for that. And I think you had Bilge on and he was talking about like the influence of all the president's men and like the influence of this movie is immense. Like I don't think you can do any of these like procedural sprawling let's look into the system and how it's fucked up movies without the influence of all the president's men. No, There's no way. I no. mean, yeah, I'm making that statement. There's no way. It's so funny. I just want to pick up before we get into the influences. I want to pick up. It's so funny with Martin Scorsese, a sort of lesser story, which I equally love is Jonah Hill was deciding to make his first movie and he famously went to Marty Scorsese's house. This was the test of, am I going to make this as a movie? He went to Marty Scorsese's house and sat down with him and Marty made him explain why he wanted to make the movie. And when he, and when he left, he was like, yeah, you, you got to do it. Like he kind of, he went to convince him why it was so essential for him to make it that he went and made it. It's just that beautiful, like, so he can, he can either do with it with his influences um, or not. And you're so right. It's like Scorsese is a student of the cinema and this movie, it's, I, I love placing this movie, you know, out of, it's so funny in a time that was already, I don't know, kind of like completely loaded with the Watergate energy and that paranoia and interrogating systems of power and, and just distrust wholesale across the american people and just the wild nature of every single day in that physical paper that your dad was picking up from 7-eleven with his coffee would have been insanity because it's just like new story after new story after new revelation after new crazy thing and then this can come along and synthesize that that energy into this really digestible really you know hypnotic thing and then later on you just watch all these other things go i've got to understand how the alchemy of that worked because by all accounts it shouldn't have it's there's no way this should have worked well and that it worked so soon after yes watergate wrapped in like 74 this movie came out in 76 like they did not sleep on it they're like you know what (laughs) this needs to be cinema right now right now so that's that's also sort of wild to me because i feel like you know in our current time you know, it's one of those things where I, I do think in our current time, we have so many more voices and so many more opportunities for amplitude. And there are more people joining the conversation. And in that way, like media has fundamentally changed. Yes. It's so different now. But at the same time, I feel like then there's even more of these opportunities for like not an immediate reaction. There's more distrust. Like you said, like there's more a sense of like, well, what's fake news and what's factual and what's not. And I feel like there's less of an opportunity for a definitive fact based take that everybody accepts. Like that's exactly what all the president's men was like the facts were clear. Like they found the thread and they followed it Yes, and you couldn't, you couldn't deviate from that reality. So it's just sort of insane to me to think like, God, like I can't imagine a movie in two years that's about Trump like that (laughs) could not happen like in our current reality. Right. Like we had to wait basically like a decade to get vice about Dick Cheney. Like I just feel like it's taking a little bit of a longer time for us to process the bizarreness and absurdness of our current political climate and things don't have that much certainty anymore. So it's just, it's sort of amazing to think that it was only two years after. Like I can't, I can't get over that. No, I can't, I can't either. I think that's something that everyone is going to try and interrogate on this show. It's, it's just something. And every time I watch it, I just can't get my head around it. I can't get my head around that. Right. To, to be released in 1976 means you're producing in 1975 and maybe writing in 74. Like, right. 
like like it's happening all concurrently and so to be so so precise with how things happen and i think only really and you and i kind of see this probably more than folk because of just the nature of what we do is you kind of only see it in documentary cinema like something like citizen four like that's the last time and and oliver stone tried to do it with snowden but it was still a couple of years later and at least they had the foundational text of citizen four to model what how the story could be structured um but snowden's an interesting one in, in that regard but yeah it's still it's still it still really feels like to be definitive so many movies have had to give decades of time for yeah. the definitive interrogation and this movie just does it effortlessly and kind of just goes by and people are like oh when was that movie made oh like t- a- two years after the what <laughs> like how does right. this even work yeah but i think it also speaks to the fact that like and i don't i don't love saying this because this doesn't because this nar- this sort of narrative like excludes so many people but like it did feel you know a time I, I wasn't alive i can't pretend that i know this firsthand but looking back on it it feels like everyone was involved in this story yes. and that everyone was paying attention and it had these ramifications that mattered I don't know right now in our political climate what could happen that would matter this much. Like it feels like things are happening without the same level of impact yes. because we're so divided. So it's one of those things too where I look back on it and I think you've talked about this with a lot of different guests so far on the show. It's like, God damn, is this a comforting movie? Oh. Like this is like it's mac a warm and hug. cheese. It's a warm oh hug. Oh, mac and cheese. Is, you nailed it. it That's is, what it is. It is so many carbs like it is directly <laughs> into my soul because I, I, i'm like god I wanna, damn I, I, like, I have to interrupt because i have to say this please i was watching please. the chef show on netflix have you watched the mm-hmm. chef show with oh John yeah Pe- of course, of course. Yeah. so the other night on one of the new episodes of the show they're eating a wagyu beef slider oh my god there's a wagyu beef brisket slider with cheese oh god, and mustard on a little brioche and eating it <sighs> that's what this movie makes me feel like like i said to my oh. wife i'm like there's, I go, I never want to not be on carbs. I hate, I love, hate I it. love carbs more than many human beings. <laughs> like, oh, please, absolutely. Please, <laughs> please give please. me that bread. Um, and, right. and, and that mac and cheese or that delicious Wagyu beef slider is what this movie makes you feel because you're like procedure, structure. And mm. ultimately one thing that we Pay haven't off. talked about, I, I want to, and we're going to get into it. We're going to watch this minute in a moment, but I want to talk to you about morality because that's what yeah. gets me every single time with this movie is that Hell I think yeah. the the ability for people to team themselves red or blue and and stick with a binary in this and use that binary to dilute to dilute reason for so long like it take the tipping point is so it seems like there's no more tipping point like before there's like a you know if you light a stick of dynamite, the wick is only so long before people explode. Like you can't, people will only take so much before there's a tipping point. And I think in America that was evident with Nixon. It was like once, you know, John Dean is at, is go, goes into, into the Watergate hearings and like literally writes a letter and just drops bombshell after bombshell on the whole complicity of the white house in the Watergate break-in and the entire public goes, Oh, this shit's all gone. They find that tipping point. And in this, I love just seeing these people at their tipping point of belief in these political machinations and structures. And now it seems like you could have a video of Trump shooting someone in the face and it would be like on Fox News, like it's a fake video. Oh, yeah, 100%. First of all, they'd be like, um, actually, this is a deep fake. That's what they would say first. And then they'd be like, guess what? Trump made the deep fake himself to like show us how bomb he is. Like it's actually very a good thing that he did this. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, it's one of those things where we could talk forever, honestly, about like how cannibalized the news media has become yes. by like corporate interests. Like we could talk about that forever. And like all corporate interests have their own political agenda and all of them are pretty much interested in maintaining the status quo. But the level to which that has taken over is really disconcerting. Yes. So that's, I mean, you know, that's why it's like we go back to this film in terms of morality. It's like, okay, so like you you did have a moral center that mattered. Yes. What happened to that? Like, where did that go? Yeah. So, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe we just watch the minute. Like maybe we watch it. Let's watch this. It. Let's watch this Let's bad boy. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Look, she, Roxanne's taking over the show. It's her show now. <laughs> Let's just do it. 
Howard the Hungry. You remember when you were hungry? I mean, I I was so pumped when you gave me this minute because Howard, they're hungry is such a good line. It's the best. It's such it's, it's such it's it's it's, it's so Jack, good. Jack Jack Warden is so great, and it, it he's a guy. And I know I've spoken about it a few times in a few episodes, but I just I just want to stress how much I love how these guys at the beginning of this film, because obviously it sort of spans over about a year. Um, or about eight months or, so, or something to that effect. It's they're not as good at the beginning of this film as they ultimately are, and so much of how good they get is reliant on the faith of these people and uh, th- these editors, this editorial team, giving them a shot and grooming them in the right direction, like pushing them hard, and sort of I, I just love that. And how they're hungry. Remember yeah, when you absolutely. were hungry? <laughs> Remember when you were hungry? Yeah. I mean, I think in another. Um... I think in another episode of this you talked about some of the shared dna between a movie like this and a movie like heat and what i love about that comparison is like the reporter editor relationship is so important it's as important as any like mentor mentee relationship and like i get as much like joy and satisfaction out of watching these editors work with woodward and bernstein as i get with like de niro and val kilmer oh my god it's like, so Macaulay it. and Shahilis. So, like, yeah, yeah the ha- that that relationship of like understanding, because yeah. he's got a totally different mode with everyone else in that movie except for Chris. He and Chris are like totally on a different level. But I love that. This, yeah, it's his same mentor relationship, and mm-hmm. and Jack Warden is doing mentor as only Jack Warden can do. Completely yeah. ball busting every second that he can Mm -hmm. and knowing like knowing what you're capable of like i think that's something that's really important in this movie is that like everybody in this newsroom knows that they're good like you're at the fucking washington post Mm. like you have made it to a certain degree everyone else next to you is equally good like you're gonna have to prove yourself and you're gonna have to prove yourself hard and i think what this movie does so well is it immediately lets you into that newsroom world and like the shifting power dynamics and how people are jockeying for stories and inches and columns and like please don't take out that paragraph but like if you're gonna take out that paragraph then i want this other paragraph and like it really captures that shifting nature of a newsroom and now everybody is constantly working and you're all working toward the same thing and like there's a real beauty i think in that like single-mindedness that i think we lose now with newsrooms honestly being gone as physical spaces and like a lot of telework and a lot of telecommuting and again like it has opened up other avenues for different voices but man like you can't really beat being in a newsroom like i'm kind of over here grinning like an idiot because like i'm remembering (laughs) what that feels like and like it feels good like let me tell you it feels really good Um, so i love my my dream my aspiration is to be on the metro desk that's my dream like it's just like i don't i if if there's somehow some you know, uh, somehow movie publications become profitable again <laughs> to the level that we could hire an office that looks like the Washington Post from all the president's men. I'm cool to just, I, I didn't need to be on the national desk or the, the international or, or even stare over at Roxana at the politics desk. I just want to hover at the Metro desk, like grinding away yeah. like a hump on the phone, calling publicists. Like that's where, well, that's and, where I belong. And that's, what's beautiful. Like about, that era of journalism is that you could just be a metro reporter you know and i don't even like using the word just in that context but like those beats 
mattered. Like people relied oh, on that Met news. Metro, like especially you know the Me the Metro reporters, and these guys are doing it too, like dealing with criminal activity. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's an incredibly important. You, you create such foundational relationships that if you are good at what you do and you report well and you maintain those sources, sometimes you're breaking stories that literally, like you become a single source. So there's like, you know, right. for, for, for people to trust, like inside police and inside, you know, crime scene investigators and all those sorts of things, like they will give you the leads and they will give you the exclusives that like kind of can define a whole city. Like you'll get, mm -hmm. you've got the pulse on what's happening in the big story. So it's, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's no, it's nothing to devalue. It's just something that unfortunately has become, you know, um, outmoded. But, you know, but I, but I, you still miss it though. Like it, it's still, oh, it's, absolutely. It's, it's, you yearn for it. Well, I think it speaks to like, there's so much isolation in our culture right now because mm. we don't value that sort of share, shared experience anymore. Mm. Like we don't value like the newspaper story or the beat cop or these people whose specialty is local. one area. He's lo local. Yeah. Local. And I think we've become we have really come to expect that people are experts at everything and that's not reality. No. Like that doesn't benefit anybody. So I love watching a movie like this and thinking like, you know, like Woodward and Bernstein, like know exactly who to call. Like they have their sources, they have their books, like they know who will give them info and who won't. Like we see them incorporate other journalists and other contacts, like, and that network of information is, I think, really driven home in the mo in the movie like as it progresses is like what having a network does for you like absolutely deep throat is integral like he is yeah. essential like they couldn't do this without deep throat no he's but he's he's the breakthroughs but they the the externals the the other sources are the web like that actually mm -hmm. solidify it because otherwise if they don't have people to back this stuff up deep throat's a madman in a, in a car park like you know that's right. what he ultimately you know you, you could totally assume that and that's why they sort of joke about him that's why they give him the nickname because he seems ridiculous but but when it when you start to get other people corroborating you're like oh shit like this is real yeah. <laughs> like that's when yeah. it becomes a reality all these other sources they're calling and things like that yeah so yeah so i think that's really great and i also think what works so well in this minute <laughs> It's like you are so fully in woodward's perspective of yes. like I know. Okay, so like I can see into the glass editor's office. They have to be talking about me because like what else would they be talking about? More people are going in there. Oh, God. So like I feel like half of his attention is very clearly focused there. And then you also have Bernstein just coming around, like looking at his copy, like looking at what he's doing, inserting himself into this whole he's scenario. So good. It's, it's a complete. So good. It's the, the camera does this beautiful move. It's about four seconds into the minute. And it's following Woodward Redford. He's got this great posture. He's pounding away on the keyboard, um, sorry, on the typewriter. He gets up and he stands. The camera does this beautiful, subtle move, follows him to the copy desk. And you see, I love the differences in posture because Bernstein's like sloped in his desk. His arms back, <laughs> his feet are up. He's talking to someone. He's shooting the shit. He's trying to grind. And as soon as he sees him, he's like, oh, now I'm going to get to work and do that thing that I do, which is uncomfortably insert myself into a situation that I shouldn't be in. And yes. he does it. And you're so right. There's a wrestle between Woodward just going, I need to do my job. But up there is Ben Bradley and Howard Simons and Harry Rosenfeld. And I think the fourth person, so that's Jack Warden, Mark, Martin Balsam, obviously Jason Robards. I mm -hmm. think the fourth person, I'm just going to go see, might be John McMartin who plays the foreign editor. I, I think, think, I think I maybe think that. Cause they're, yeah, because they've just been talking about the fact of like they want to move the story they away move the from story. two of them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like they're calling at everybody to talk over that decision. And so they're wrestling, and it's like that beautiful aquarium. You know, I think I think uh, a great French film critic Jean Baptiste Thoray came up with this frame uh, phrase called aquarium syndrome. He used it for Michael Mann movies, but I love that mm. that it looks like an aquarium. They're just in there. He looks up, and then. And then what distracts Woodward from his pining to like, shit, I hope they are talking about me. I hope I'm not going to get in trouble is he glances over and just sees Bernstein lighting a cigarette on someone's desk, by the way. Like he's lighting a match <laughs> on their desk and just putting a cigarette, it up and just like looking at himself and then taking it away from the copy desk. And the copy editor is like right. looking at him like she's like, oh, it's Carl, I guess. Like this is what he does. And it's so funny because 
there's so much action. There's so many people around there, like busily humping out stories, whatever they need to do. And it's this capturing of attention and like looking around the pole and catching him at this and, and with nothing being said, it's just so beautiful. Like it's just a, it's, it's a scene that has got, it's just jam packed. It's absolutely jam packed. It's so good at giving you such a physical sense of this space. Yes. And just like, honestly, how like run down and sort of shitty it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like this is not like. Oh, this, this is shit not, everywhere. Like, glamorous. Oh, yeah. Like there's stacks of paper everywhere. There are books. My God, phone books still existed. So there are phone books everywhere. Yes. I mean, it's incredibly precarious. And yet, like, <laughs> my God, like it has such a vibrancy and urgency. Mm. And I always think of it because, um, you know, like there are still movies. There are absolutely still movies made about journalists like i don't want to say that there are not because unfortunately there are and most of them aren't that great but in general it's like a lot of them now are like oh they're like these chic beautiful like brooklyn lofts and like everyone has like a 32 inch flat screen and (laughs) there's snacks everywhere like it's very luxurious and opulent and i'm like fuck that where is like this phone book from 1977 like where someone is there I mean, look, people are now ironically wearing the corduroy pants, which I hate. I really want people to, like, love the corduroy pants they're in and have gigantic wide ties. And I want shit over the desks, too. I hate that because you just, like, if this is a real publication, you know in, like, a week they're going belly up. Like, all these people are leaving. This, this, is, this is not sustainable in today's market. Like, I think for you and I, maybe it's just, like, too much realness. You're like, nah. That's not real. Yeah. This can't I'm be like, right. I'm like, that's not real. Yeah, I know too much about this. Like, <laughs> I absolutely know that your snack budget right now is more than a journalist is getting paid. Like, yeah. can we... Like, kill the snack budget and hire real... a freelancer. Come on, guys. What right. are we doing? Yeah, maybe get a copy editor. Like, <laughs> it's not that hard. But yeah, but yeah, so like, there's so much like vibrancy and urgency and there are like a million phones ringing and everybody's picking up the phone and everybody's looking at each other, but also like everybody is focused on what they're doing. Like, also to yes. a certain degree, I could see Bernstein thinking like Woodward like just do your job like I got this like don't worry about it like it'll be okay you know so there's also such friction between the two of them that I love in that scene between this like clean cut all American beautiful Robert Redford oh my god like isn't it isn't it isn't it just the thing like people are like you know, uh, isn't it, a few people said like, isn't it funny that Woodward gets played by Robert Redford? Like, yes, I'm like, doesn't everyone want to be played by Robert Redford? I'm happy that yeah. he doesn't. I, I want to be played by Robert Redford. Like, he's going to make me look much, especially '70s Robert Redford. He's going to make me look like five thousand times more glamorous than I really am. Like, what are we talking what about, person, guys? What person in this world would be like, oh, actually, you want Robert Redford to play me? I'm sorry, he's too attractive, and I feel compromised. <laughs> Nobody's going to say that. Are you kidding me? That sentence has never been said. It's only been said in a hypothetical about how ridiculous someone's thought pattern would be if that was that. I love – it's about halfway through this minute – there's that beautiful so so much of it I love how you said it's about it's anchored in Woodward's perspective and it's good to note in this minute that it is anchored in his perspective it's it's him at the desk it's him getting up and it's not only the physical expanse of this entire newsroom it's like the height because you know for anyone who's ever worked in like a corporate site or if you've ever worked in an office or even like a university that you've gone to or a library and so high ceilings mean that it's quieter because sound has an opportunity to sort of travel and then deaden but this office is a like is 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 humming because the ceilings are low and it's expansive there's nowhere to go like typewriter sounds phone sounds it's all there you're right in the experience and you're in the messy desk chaos of it all but you get to about like 40 seconds into the minute and finally the perspective shifts you look over you see this great head tilt because Woodward catches Bernstein and you get to look at his face looking at Bernstein and it's it's that change of like POV in like two seconds. It's such a deft little thing, man. Gordon Willis and Alan Bakula are just freaking masters. They It changes it so you're literally like you're looking out of Woodward's eyes over at Bernstein smoking this cigarette, reading what he submitted. And when he takes it away, he kind of looks back down and is like, do I do anything with this? No, I'm going to keep typing. I'm going to keep typing. And and then he's like, no, keep typing, keep typing. Look up. What am I going to do? Seize the guys in there. And basically our minute closes. But it's just, I mean, just a, from a pure technical perspective there, just getting inside this guy's head, 
getting inside the wackiness of Bernstein, I just love it. Like, I love... There's more camera moves and execution and intentionality in that little sequence than are sometimes packed in whole movies or whole scenes. And it's just, it's, this is a minute of a movie. It, it flabbergasts me. And I think there's so much really, well, first of all, I think it's worth saying that like it won the Academy Awards for best art direction and best sound, which yes. I think are so obvious in this scene. Like so the obvious. production design of that newsroom fucking on point, the sound. I mean, like you said, <laughs> like that typewriter sound, like it grabs you, like it rattles you, like you want to know where it's coming from. And then it's like, oh, there are like a million typewriters going <laughs> off at the same time. Yes. Like everyone, everyone is hard at work. Everyone's okay. hard at work. So so that's awesome but like the character work like you said like the character development that is captured in just a minute like you get such a sense of like woodward is a little bit of a boy scout yes a little bit of this guy who is like doing his job sort of worried that maybe his best isn't enough like what are the editors gonna think like he is following the system and he is trying to do his best and then you have bernstein who's just this fucking rogue agent (laughs) like stealing copy lighting cigarettes on desks like who is this maniac and i love i want to i want to light cigarettes and smoke them right at people's desks so badly after watching this movie Yeah, it's like I, you know, and so you you really also get this sense of like, I think you really know that Woodward feels like the desk is his place and he needs to be at the desk. And Bernstein's just floating, man. Like Bernstein sees the entire newsroom as his place. And I think that sort of one of them being very narrowly focused and following the steps of the job and the other one being like, well, let's look broader like that is a beautiful like that is a beautiful balance and you get it so much also and this is like skipping to another moment but it really makes me think of the scene in the library of congress where we're going out and out and out and out and out and probably the iconic shot of the movie the iconic shot of the movie but you know it's grounding them in that space and honestly, how insignificant they are in that space. Oh, yeah. And I think this movie also, this scene also does something similar where, like, for themselves, their place in that newsroom is really important in that moment. But also for tons of other people in that newsroom, they don't matter at yeah. all. <laughs> yeah. In that moment, they're all doing their own stories. And we can only mm-hmm. focus on one person in one space. And so in this moment, what's so cool, and I think to reinforce your point, which is like, Woodward's anchoring to his desk. It's even in his posture. Like he's like bunched up, really great posture. And that kind of breadth comes out and Bernstein in his like body language. He's like spread out over the desk. I'll light my cigarette anywhere. I'll pick up other people's shit. I'll walk back to my desk. Like he doesn't care. Like he's not there. You know, there, there are those folks who, you know, if you've ever been in a shitty job and you know, some folks may be listening to this podcast, like you're stuck in a shitty contact center job or you're on the phones or something like that. And you kind of are anchored to your desk until you're allocated break. Like that's what it is. You feel this pressure of if I'm not sitting here waiting for the thing or doing the thing and doing the activity, then I'm, I'm not doing my job or I'm not going to be good at my job. And these are two, like, you know, the experience is written all over the way that they, the, the way that they perform their role in the office there it's so cool and it's just like these are details right like just such subtle details that you're watching and getting to sort of like savor with every viewing and um and i just also love like the commitment and again i'll reinforce it as we're in any scene here is the background actors that are in this movie are just fucking doing it they are just doing it it they are just so good because they're not they're not distracting you you know, they're, they're really, right. really great. They're like the actors that they're more reminiscent of people who act in a, uh, not one of those contemporary movies we talked about, like where there's a contemporary newsroom where someone's eating snacks and they're just being annoying, like you know, annoyingly wealthy version of something. They're more like a disaster movie extras who are all like freaking out in unison. And But, you know, there's like a thing that everyone's just on it. They're just doing their thing. Everyone is doing their task everyone is doing their job and there's something deeply fulfilling about that for me about knowing that these people are effective and confident and getting stuff done like there's something about that that I just really love and I feel like we don't really have movies 
I mean, that's unfair. I, there's a movie for everything. So I don't want to say like this movie doesn't exist, <laughs> but I, I think it's, I think it's less common now where you get a movie about like the details of your job and the details of a plan. Like we only see that now I feel like in the heist movies and yes. that's fine. Like I love a good heist movie. Like, please give me fast and furious, like inject it into my blood. <laughs> but like, not everybody is like a criminal right like some people are just doing their jobs and they're doing it well and so like that is really deeply fulfilling to watch in a movie like this and honestly like it totally makes sense though that like this movie came from these filmmakers Mm. because like Alan Pakala and William Goldman like that's what they did right like (laughs) Goldman wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid like they're effective as hell like they totally know what they're doing like they're good at their jobs right and like alan pakala also directed to kill a mockingbird like you have the pelican brief in there like you have a lot of movies that are about procedure Mm. and about like how following the steps of a procedure can inevitably lead to something that is deeply satisfying and like wrapping it up like the power comes from wrapping it up and figuring out what you need to get done and getting it done and so that's so much of the comfort too right is it's like you watch this movie and like something has been accomplished and there's something really good about that yeah really good about that it's 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 something happens and although it's kind of it seems like an and even Bilga said this in the first episode it's like it seems like an artistic choice but it also seems so obvious for the time is that they don't need to tell us that nixon's gone because he's gone like the ramifications of that sort of echo through through the country at the time the, the the film being produced and the time it was released it was so prevalent so they didn't need to reinforce that with this you know gl- you know uh, inglorious moment where he's out um but but I think it's they do it and then they keep doing it like that's mm-hmm. the point of the movie it's like this is just one story mm-hmm. the pursuit is keep is, is keep going it's like the, the stories don't end you don't retire after this it's not done mm-hmm. you keep going and that's like the perfect line of dialogue right like isn't it bradley who's like don't fucking quit yeah. like you guys <laughs> fucked up like you made the mistake keep going like i know we're jumping around now but like that's because like so much of the movie like in some ways i feel like while the linear obviously the linear format of this movie is very much the point because we are following a specific timeline of actions when i think about like the moments of these movie like everything gets jumbled together because everything is so good yes yeah you look back and like when was that when did that happen right like when did that happen but yeah it's like i distinctly you know and i feel like this is like we could say so many scenes are the scene Mm. but like Asking whether you're hungry, that's a scene. Like, Library of Congress, that's a scene. And Bradley telling them to, like, get back to fucking work. Like, that's, <laughs> that's the scene. That might be the scene. That might be right. the scene. Because there's the I mean, scenes that's... and then there's the scene. Rest right. up like 15 you... minutes and get your asses back right. in gear. Like, get your – just get back to work. Like, just do it. And honestly, like – and that that is so much of what being a beat journalist is is Mm. like it is like all right so like you're gonna grab like a couple minutes of sleep eat something real quick and then just like get back get Get back to work and it's a grind yeah yeah get Get the fuck back to work and we romanticize it like for sure like i i love it but it is draining and exhausting and it wears on you and i think the movie also does a very good job of communicating that aspect of it too that like it is deeply fulfilling because it is work yes and because it takes effort and because it's not easy and so i think there's so much of that too that rhythm and the pattern of that is built into the movie like obviously we know how it ends like we know nixon is out but it wasn't easy by any means like things didn't fall into their laps like they had to figure it out and I think you really get the sense of that and that's why I sort of wonder like when I watch all the president's men now is like is that format applicable to our current reality or do people not 
respect this sort of work anymore. And that's what I don't know on like a grand scale. Like that's what I wonder about. So I feel like so much of this movie feels like a time that doesn't exist anymore and a perspective that isn't as respected anymore. I, I don't know. I just, I treasure it because I don't know it could get made in 2020 and I don't know if people would care to the same level that they clearly cared then. Yeah. I think in 2020, you're so spot on 2020. It's there's more of the very concept of something like fake news interrogates, you know, the sort of modern clickbait era of journalism, which is, you know, inflammatory to get attention and then not looking into the detail. It's sort of that tweet version of everything without that articulation. And I think that it's, I think it's it's around, but I think what people are starting to do, even with podcasts and, and certain publications out there that still have those reputations, is they, they want to deep dive. They want to give things air. They mm. want to know the details. And, and, and so many of these, you know, popular television shows and things like that, they just don't they, – they, they live and die by Vox Pop. And so I think it's like our modern mode might just be to interrogate, is someone trying to, you know – shine this up and make it something that it's not because they're trying to get clicks and trying to stay relevant. Um, and, and I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to change, but I feel like I don't, I feel like the tide is turning. I feel like mm -hmm. me, maybe as an optimist, I'm feeling like the tide is turning, but I, but I think you're so spot on about work. The work being done is draining and satisfying and seeing that things are tough, make them worthwhile. Yeah. And I think, you know, and to my, previous point of like movies don't I mean movies do exist because I feel like a movie that shares a lot of DNA with all the president's men is the report which came out last year and starred oh, Adam Driver love the report. you know yeah the report is fucking great and bleak and it crushes <laughs> yeah. your soul yes. and it hurt Put I mean her it hurts on the fucking poster right now <laughs> yeah it's great like, it's, it's bleak it and it is, crushes your fucking it, soul <laughs> Right. But, but, but the thing about the movie and like, I, you know, so I saw that movie at TIFF. Mm. It was the first movie that I saw at TIFF, my first time going to TIFF. And that movie had more walkouts than pretty much any movie I've really? ever seen. Aside from Nicholas Winding Refn's uh, Only God Forgives, which like had a lot of walkouts at the Sydney Film Festival too. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, and I was like, um, actually, this movie is dope as hell. Please leave. <laughs> you don't deserve this. But but yeah, like people walked out of the report. Like I don't think people could handle like the torture scenes or the interrogation scenes, mm. um, which really happened, which actually happened. And so when I think about a movie like The Report, like that movie has the same sort of pattern to me of like you know what the truth is and you know that you can find it if just you keep going and like Adam driver really captures that pursuit as well. Like, I love that you said the word pursuit when we were talking about heist movies. Cause like, that's what it is. Like you're chasing something that you know, you can find that movie was great. And that movie felt like it disappeared. Like that movie did not feel like it had no, it cultural. Didn't, impact, didn't have a splash. You know, despite, didn't have a splash. Right, despite, despite being, excellently made coming from Scott Burns and Soderbergh who I mean I don't want to call them like indie royalty because you know like the report was an Amazon Studios movie but like you don't get much better bona fides than the two of them no. like it had Adam Driver who is the internet's boyfriend but like <laughs> you know but like but nobody was talking about that and also movie Adam Driver has this weird Redford and Hoffman energy he's got like that oh, Hoffman hair and he's yes. got like Redford's body and he's just, yes. yeah, like it's, it's Woodstein yeah. energy. Like they're like, we need oh. one guy. So this is the guy. Yeah. He and can be Robert guy. Redford or Dustin Hoffman. He does it. He does it right. all. He does both. And that movie, like that movie does not let off the hook. The no. fact that like, there are so many war criminals who now still have cushy, wonderful private industry jobs that were responsible for the deaths and torture of countless people. But I feel like we live in a time now where that can get just swallowed and gone. It's disappeared. Swallowed, gone. Like people are less interested in something that doesn't feel like it has an easy answer. And I don't think, I mean, the wars on terror aren't over. Like we're trapped in a state of endless war and these problems are still our everyday problems. So what I wonder is like what we talked about, like it felt like the report was 
fairly timely. It was like, you know, mm-hmm. a few years after the whistleblower came forward. Like, it's not that far removed from the Obama presidency. And the Obama presidency was trying to clean up things that the Bush presidency did. So again, it's like, it didn't feel like it was that much time, but like, it just didn't make an impact. Whereas all the president's men, like it is still up on that pedestal. So that's like the kind of stuff that I think about when it's like, I don't think, I don't know what would have cultural impact in the same way as this movie did. Or like you said, or even Snowden, like Snowden is still very much like a hero among various circles of the internet i mean <laughs> yeah i i like i feel comfortable saying that like i respect snowden for I what res- he did like, i respect him deeply know. and it's it's funny that that movie is timely as well but both of those movies it's like the i think they're both uh, and, and i think the report this is the mastery like so snowden uh, you know because obviously oliver stone is a more sort of cantankerous filmmaker mm-hmm. and personality like he's, he's he's going out there to back back the whistleblower in, in, in all ways, shapes and forms. So, you know, and so, right. and, and that is, I think citizen four is citizen four has at least that like a little bit more measured that it's the reality and, mm-hmm. and he's underscoring it a little bit more, but the report is made with a very partisan lens. Like it's not, there's mm-hmm. not, it's, it's not, it's not solely saying this is the problem of Republicans. It's talking about like manipulate. It's talking about manipulation of individuals, like in, in mm-hmm. people's vulnerability to do bad shit. And then when they're called on it and they're caught on it, it's about the cycles of all those defenses, putting up, putting up, putting up, putting up, putting up until eventually people like literally have no choice to scream and, and to go to the media and utilize that, that channel. So it's really interesting, but I think, you know, this is one thing I think for the report, and this is what I think we're going to find. And you and I are going to probably be some of those people because of our lives on the internet. that are going to find them is there are great films now that sometimes take a few years to breathe. And I feel like yeah. the report is a movie that in two or three years, people are going to go, you know, there's a common phrase that I know that I think you and I have interacted with one another about them. It's just like, this movie didn't get any justice from us, guys. We failed. Like, we mm-hmm. failed. We it, failed. We yeah, failed. we failed. And, and there'll be movies in the next few years where we're like, guys, we failed at this one. And we really need mm-hmm. to reinterrogate it. And the great thing about some of these streaming things, especially with Amazon at the moment, is like they don't have a big pool of original films. So, they, you know, if you own Prime, you can go and revisit it. And I think I've luckily gone back and watched the report a few times now because it's got that same energy that I'm pursuing here. So it's just we're going to find it. I think they'll emerge. Like in the swamp of all this new shit that's out every day, you know, things still cut through. And sometimes they just take a little bit of time. And all it takes is a couple of us to you know, stands of certain things with, you know, and it's got the internet's boyfriend. People are going to go back. I love that you call it yeah. the internet's boyfriend. People are going to find oh, it course. and go, this is fucking great. This is excellent. And it throws some and serious I- shade at Zero Dark Thirty, which I'm a fan of. Oh, yeah. I mean, Zero Dark Thirty is one of those movies. So, like, at, you know, like, as an Iranian-American, like, my birthday is September 12th. Like, I, you know, shit. I experienced, yeah, I experienced some shit after 9-11. My parents did. Um, I saw how it changed my family. And so, like, Zero Dark Thirty was one of those movies. And, like, this this is probably, like, the most embarrassing thing I've ever written. Like, I can look back on this now and be like, mm, I shouldn't have written that shit. Um, Zero Dark Thirty came out, and I wrote an essay for Exo Jane. <laughs> <laughs> about how um, I'm laughing about it because it's so deeply uncomfortable. Um, is I wrote this essay that was like, I think Zero Dark Thirty and like us capturing Osama bin Laden will hopefully make things better because like everyone blames bin Laden for 9/11 and like hopefully this will be like the end of this cycle of like racism and discrimination and etc and it was a very naive like very rose tinted glasses very optimistic very optimistic and And it happens when you're young you're optimistic yeah you're young i was like oh of course things will change please things don't change (laughs) but um but i look back on it now and it's like you know like it it feels bad to remember that you once had hope Mm. and that's terrible like that's but like that's the thing about zero dark 30 is it's like i feel like it came at this perfect time where it again when we're talking about timeliness like it was fairly soon after bin laden was captured and killed like it was very much the movie that america needed to tell itself that it was doing a good job on the war on terror and that this was winnable and i remember my boyfriend and i saw it together and um 
he studied Middle Eastern history and he kept leaning over to me and being like, why is this CIA expert played by Jessica Chastain mispronouncing easy things in Arabic? (laughs) You know? So that's the sort of thing where it's like, I think about that movie and how it was the movie that America needed at that time and absolutely the one that it shouldn't have gotten because I think it helped kick us off onto this series of movies like 13 Hours and Six Underground and these movies that confuse nationalism and patriotism and heroism and all of these concepts that I feel like we can't fuck around with confusing at this current moment. Yes. But those are the movies that are going to get made. But I think about those movies and all the president's men and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go with all the president's men <laughs> being the more heroic film. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, cause like what they were doing was deeply dangerous. And I think the movie makes that clear. Like it was CIA, it was intelligence people. It was the government. Like in that moment in time, it did feel like everyone was out to get them and to contain this story. And I think that sense of fear is very palpable in all the president's men in a lot of ways that I don't find in modern films, um, where a lot of times we are relying on these faceless, poor, Muslim, brown terrorists. Like, when I watch All the President's Men, like, you remember the phone call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> yeah. You know? The real enemy and, are the white guys and the CIA. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> not, real enemy not the poor brown people. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you have, like, a direct line to John Krasinski, but remember when he was like, we should actually be thanking the CIA every day? I'm like, uh-uh. No, dog. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> Look. One thing we can hope is that this show is a direct line to John Krasinski. We like A Quiet Place. More power yeah, to you, my you, friend. Actually, yeah. If you just don't talk about the CIA, but you do send us a screener of Quiet Place, <laughs> Place 2. Two. would love that. Big fans. Also, congrats on being married to Emily Blunt. She's the best. Yeah. Right. So, don't know how that happened. Don't know how like, that happened. Good for you. Well done. Good for you. However, <laughs> also, good idea with casting Killian Murphy. I will say... That looks like a master stroke in a quiet place. <laughs> well, I think the perfect way to end today's episode of All the President's Minutes is with a quote directly from my amazing guest, Roxana, which is, things change, please. You can find her <laughs> at Roxana underscore Hadadi, H-A-D-A-D-I on Twitter, and you can follow her there to all of her other places, Pajaba, uh, Brightwell Dark Room, she's uh, written for the in fact the best uh, independent uh, movie website that there's going around in my in this guy's opinion um roxana you've been amazing thank you so much for being a part of the show you have to come back we're going to find another minute to talk about somewhere along the way yeah that would be amazing i mean this was really i really had a good time thank you for you know as i always say thank you for letting me get back on my bullshit so <laughs> i really appreciate it you are welcome Huge thank you to my special guest, Roxana Hadadi. You can find her on Twitter at Roxana underscore Hadadi, R-O-X-A-N-A underscore Hadadi, H-A-D-A-D-I. And that leads off to RoxanaHadadi.com and all of her other stuff. Uh, She's been an amazing guest and uh, I can't wait to have her back on the show. Thank you so much again for listening to all the President's Minutes and anything on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and producer of Increment Vice, as well as everything that's been happening on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to follow me, simply go to at OneBlakeMinute on Instagram and on Twitter, or to OneHeatMinute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show. If you guys want to support us, we have a link on OneHeatMinute.com to our Patreon. If you can spare even a couple of bucks a month, the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show, The Amazing Increment Vice, and any other amazing shows that are a part of One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much in advance. If you can't support us, you don't have the cash, that's totally fine. But please subscribe, rate, review, and share the shows. We would love, if you are digging the show, share them with like-minded film folk around the place. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes and another episode in the One Heat Minute Productions feed very soon.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.